I'd like to pose to you a question that I'm sure that you've heard asked and answered many times before. It's a trick question, so be careful. What is the true meaning of Christmas? I, I can see by your faces that some of you feel pretty clever right now. We'll see. That phrase, the true meaning of Christmas, has a long history. It first appeared in the mid-19th century, often with, with vaguely religious overtones. Uh, but overt religious references, even back then, were mostly avoided. And the true meaning was taken to mean, basically, a, a compassionate, generous, benevolent attitude toward all humanity. So think of the Charles Dickens classic, A Christmas Carol. The advertising blurb on that book reads, A miser learns the true meaning of Christmas when three ghostly visitors review his past and foretell his future. And I'd say that the way we use that phrase now, it's probably a, a combination, an amalgamation of the lessons learned by Ebenezer Scrooge and in opposition to the rampant commercialization of Christmas. So, crass materialism, massive credit card debt, disgusting gluttony, conspicuous consumption. No, that's not the true meaning of Christmas. It's about love and kindness and family and generosity and selflessness and benevolence, charity and helping others less fortunate. It's about giving drivers waiting to pull into the flow of downtown traffic a break. Right, come on, buddy, it's Christmas. You know? And, and those are attitudes of heart that everyone can get behind, right? Regardless of our religious beliefs. So I'll ask again, what is the true meaning of the Christmas season? And as I put that question to you in a Bible-believing Christian church where Jesus Christ is worshipped as Lord after having just sung carols, praising God for the gift of his Son, we're all perhaps expecting the answer to be Jesus. Jesus is the reason for the season. Well, yes and no. Christmas, the holiday, the season, the day, isn't a biblically prescribed observance for faithful followers of Christ. It's cultural. It's traditional. We have no idea when Jesus of Nazareth was actually born. So in one sense... What's the true meaning of the Christmas season is a question the Bible doesn't really answer because there is no season. However, the question related to this season that the Bible does ask and answers is of great significance. It's a question for all peoples, for all times, for all seasons. Who is this child, Jesus? Why was he born? What's the meaning of his birth? What do we read in Luke chapter 2, verse 11? Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, Christ the Lord. And this is what Luke sets out to explain then to his readers. He's already explained in the opening verses of chapter 1 that he is an historian who has carefully investigated the claims of the good news of Jesus Christ from the very beginning. And now in chapter 2 of his gospel, the evangelist sets down the stories that he selected and investigated concerning Jesus' birth. 
And I'd wager that many of us, regardless of our religious backgrounds or heritage, we've come across this passage before. It's quoted in Handel's Messiah and a Charlie Brown's Christmas. So we're getting both sides of the cultural spectrum there. Linus quotes chapter 2, verse 8 through 14, in explanation of the true meaning of Christmas, and he does so each year to millions of people on network television. And here we see Luke the historian coming out. Follow along in your Bibles. Verse 1, in those days. Now just notice that. Luke's narrative of Jesus' birth doesn't begin once upon a time. Right? It's in those days. That's because Christ's birth isn't a myth. This is a faithful record of divine activity in historical time. In those days, Caesar Augustus, so during his reign, issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. And we know from chapter 1 that Mary and Joseph, they live in Galilee, up north, in the sticks, in a small town called Nazareth. But, according to Jewish scripture, some of it that was read this morning, the Messiah, the long-promised king of Israel, and, and direct descendant of King David, he doesn't come from Nazareth. Hundreds of years before Jesus' birth, the prophet Micah writes this, Micah 5, 2, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me, for, for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So that means Bethlehem's the place. The king, the Messiah, is to be born in King David's hometown of Bethlehem. The Bible says so. Which means the issue that Luke needs to tackle first is how, how did Jesus come then to be born in Bethlehem? Mary and Joseph lived 90 miles north in Nazareth. But if Jesus isn't born in the city of David, then he can't, he can't be the long-promised ruler over Israel. Just case closed. However, what we don't see here is Mary and Joseph sort of reverse engineering events to fit their baby into the biblical prophecy. Sort of like how uh, Cinderella's ugly stepsisters try to squish their feet to the glass slipper. They're not doing that here. It, it, it's not that early Christians said, yes, Jesus' parents, they lived in Nazareth, but one week before Mary was about to give birth, they deliberately made the long trip to Bethlehem so their son could be born in the right place, thus fulfilling all the prophecies. No. The events surrounding the birth of the king of Israel are grounded in that culture's common history. Caesar Augustus issues a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world when Quirinius was governor in Syria. Mary and Joseph, they would have been happy to have had their baby born in Nazareth. Mary's nine months pregnant. The last thing in the world she wants to undertake is this long, arduous trip south. Friends, what we see here in, in Caesar's decree is God's sovereign control of all things. It's Caesar's decree that makes this happen, that brings about this fulfillment. Not because Augustus has knowledge of Mary's virginal conception and he wants to do his part 
to fulfill the prophecies. Augustus only wants to register all the provincial citizens of his empire for the purposes of assessing taxes. This is all about money. But Caesar is God's unknowing agent. Caesar himself. God is sovereign. God controls all of human history. The ruler of Israel was to come out of Bethlehem, and it's this governmental decree that puts the parents in the right place for that to happen, and then takes him away again. So verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So, Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. Ah, the plot thickens. Verse 5, he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Flip back with me just one chapter. Go back to Luke 1.26. We read, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin, pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, imagine being a Jew steeped in the writings of the Old Testament, and you read here that Joseph, a descendant of King David, has come to register for his taxes in Bethlehem, the city of David, the prophesied birthplace of the Messiah, and with him is his very pregnant wife, Mary, who is still a virgin. What would you think? There's only one thing to think. The Messiah is to be born, God's anointed one, the deliverer, the son of David, Emmanuel, God with us. And with his birth, all that that entails for Israel and the world. So back to chapter 2, verse 6. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. You see, so Jesus' birth is, is, is written with a lot of simplicity. There's almost no details here, right? It's just the facts. Uh, the time has come for the baby to be born, so Mary gives birth to her firstborn son. And that is a significant detail because the firstborn son in those days has all the inheritance rights and any regal kingly rights. So it's not Prince Harry who gets the crown, poor lad. Right? It's Prince William. So Jesus has the right as the firstborn son to inherit David's throne, not one of his younger brothers. 
And we read that Mary wraps Jesus up and places him in an empty feed trough because there was no guest room available for them. So, the long-promised events have at last been fulfilled. The birth of the Messiah, God's anointed one, the Deliverer, the Son of David. So what in the world is God doing allowing the ruler of Israel to be born in a room normally reserved for animals? Why is a stable the Messiah's first throne room? What manner of king is this? And what manner of reign will Jesus have? And with verse 8, Luke turns from the birth of the son of David and God's control over all of history to the announcement of his coming into the world. Now we get God's commentary on these events. Verse 8, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Now remember, this is the moment that Israel has been waiting for for centuries. All the moments of promise and fulfillment in the past find their significance in this night, in this moment, and, and here comes the angel of the Lord, shining in glory, which is totally appropriate. It's exactly what you would expect. Followed by a great company of the heavenly host. They appear, they're praising God. Yes, of course, that's what you would expect. And, and what's the venue, though, for this glorious angelic announcement? Is it God's temple in Jerusalem? Is it inside the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council? Is it the Senate in Rome? Is it in Caesar's palace? Some place of circumstance, some place of power? No. The angelic announcement of the birth of great King David's greater son occurs in the fields of Bethlehem at night to a small group of shepherds watching over sheep, maybe three, four guys. Why in the world would God choose to announce the birth of the ruler of Israel and the inauguration of his eternal, everlasting kingdom in that manner? Friends, God has never conformed to human expectations. The eternal Son incarnates. He takes on flesh, but he doesn't appear in the sky in all of his glorious splendor, like a million supernovas. Instead, he's born in a smelly barn to a Jewish teenager suspected of fornication. He has only a three-year public ministry. He tells agrarian parables. He reveals himself to peasants. His disciples are fishermen. 
He is betrayed, he is arrested, and he dies in shame on a Roman cross. The kingdom of God and the reign of his son, Jesus, is unlike anything we could have expected. And the fact that this message of good news, of great joy for all the people is being announced out in the countryside to a group of three or four shepherds, that doesn't matter. Because the problem, the problem isn't a deficiency of divine revelation. There's a superabundance of it. God's word has gone out into all the world. Friends, there are Bibles on that back table that we are giving away for free. That's our, our gift to you. Please, take one home. Take it home and read it. The, the extent to which God has disclosed himself and his workings in history, in Holy Scripture, is staggering. But the human problem is that we desire modes of revelation from God other than what God has provided. Isn't that so? We want something contemporary. We want something visibly glorious. We want God to come down from heaven and split the waters of Lake Ontario right before our eyes and then we'll believe. That's the problem. See, we desire modes of revelation from God other than what God has provided. Friends, I can assure you of something. There will be no angelic visitations in Nathan Phillips Square this Christmas Eve telling skeptical Torontonians what God has done for humanity in his son Christ Jesus. It's not going to happen. We have the Bible. And the Bible is utterly sufficient. The Bible contains all the words of God human beings need for salvation, for trusting God perfectly, and for living obedient lives. All that to say, guys, don't be distracted in this story by choirs of angels as if their testimony to the shepherds is somehow more certain, a higher, more dependable, faith-engendering revelation than we enjoy in Holy Scripture. That's not true. That, that was just three or four men. This is for the faith of the world. Verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, the great Shekinah glory of God's majestic presence. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Not culturally relative news. That is, news that's good, bad, or indifferent, depending on your interpretive community. It's good news if you live in the West, but you can take it or leave it if you're from an Eastern spiritual tradition. No, this news is objectively, absolutely, culture-transcendingly good, and it's good news that will cause great joy, and, and not for some subset, some token subset of humanity, but for all the people. This is good news for you, friend. It's good news for me. It's for everyone. And what is this good news? Verse 11. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. 
He is the Messiah, the Lord. And what do saviors do? They save people. And a first century Jew would be thinking, yes, the Messiah is a savior, and when he comes, he will save us, he will deliver us from our national enemy, the cursed Romans. But Jesus wasn't the kind of savior, the kind of deliverer, the kind of king that people were waiting for, which is why they stumbled over his shameful cross. I assume we've all seen the movie, the 1999 movie, The Sixth Sense. What's the climax of that movie? Guys, you've had 25 years to watch this, okay? So I don't feel bad about giving this away, but I'm going to blow it here, all right? (laughs) Here's the climax. The little boy who sees dead people is the only person in the movie who can see Bruce Willis or talk to Bruce Willis because Bruce Willis is dead. And once we know that, once we know that Bruce Willis is a ghost throughout the entire movie, when we go back and we watch the film a second time, it's so obvious. It's so obvious. Every, every conversation, every action is different now because we understand the climax. And in each of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, it's the end of the book, the climax of the Gospel, that provides us with the overall context for everything Jesus says and does and every prophecy that he fulfills. And that same climax, which is the death and the resurrection of the King of the Jews, must be read into this angelic announcement in chapter 2. Luke expects us to read his gospel through more than once. Because if we, read through, if we read the whole book through, then we know that this Davidic Messiah, this Son of the Most High, this Savior, gives his own life as a ransom to save his people from their sins. It's the cross and resurrection that show us what kind of Savior this Son of David really is. Flip ahead. Let's go to the climax of this book. Let's go to Luke 23, verse 32. Luke 23, 32 to 46. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed, with Jesus. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, forgive them. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today 
you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. Friends, the angelic announcement in chapter 2, read in light of the climax of Luke's gospel here in chapter 23, orients us to the fundamental purpose of Jesus' coming and the essential nature of his reign that he inaugurates as King Messiah and heir to David's throne. Jesus is a savior. Jesus was born to die to save guilty sinners from eternal condemnation. Whom did Jesus come to save? All his people, Gentiles, Jews, everyone who would ever trust in his name. How did he save them? By leaving the glories of heaven, becoming a man, and dying in their place on a cross. Our Savior came on a mission to die for our sin in our place. Let me speak of him to you, friend. Let me speak to you of my Savior. We're all guilty sinners in God's court of law, but thanks be to God, there is good news that causes great joy, good news for all the people, because we're all sinners. Jesus, the Son of David, the Christ, the Anointed One, came into the world to save sinners. And it's through his death and resurrection that rebellious, sinful image bearers have forgiveness. It's through his death and resurrection that we have eternal life because on the cross, Jesus destroyed death and brought his people life and immortality. So as we sang, born that man no more should die. That's the biblical trajectory which removes this story from the front of sentimental hallmark season's greetings cards and directly into the heart of God's eternal plan to save sinners. Luke 2.11. The angel says, Today in the town of David a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And obviously that word is packed with meaning. And in time, as more of Jesus' life unfolds in Luke's gospel, and then in his second volume, uh, the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, the title Lord will become a key term to describe Jesus. Lord is the Old Testament word for God, for sovereign deity. But for now, Luke is content to present the term from the angelic announcement and not explain it. Again, Luke expects his readers to read his gospel and then his second volume, the book of Acts, more than once, so we can fill out the meaning of a term like that with subsequent readings. Verse 12, this will be a sign to you, and the sign's unusual character confirms the announcement's truth. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host, so a great company of the angelic army of heaven appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. 
this angelic army of heaven is revealing to the shepherds through praise to God what the results of Jesus' coming are. On earth, peace to those on whom God's favor rests. And this peace, dear friends, is directly linked to the fact that Jesus is the Savior. This is the peace of full salvation that God gives through His Son. The total well-being that flows from a right relationship with the living, sovereign God through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's like the famous first verse of the song that we sang earlier. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth, and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. It's this peace of reconciliation between God and sinners that the Lord Jesus Christ brings. I need to ask a question. You may find it an offensive question, but this is where the biblical text leads us. It's really the story of the whole Bible, beginning with the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. I need to ask, friend, do you think of your relationship with God in these terms? that of a sinner, a rebel, to a holy God. Not, not friends, but two enemies who must be reconciled. On the cross, the climax of Luke's gospel, God reconciles the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, all those upon whom God's gracious undeserving favor rests. And friend, this peace, this same peace is yours for the asking. Just look to Jesus and believe. And if you do, that means you can praise God with the angels. Glory to God. Glory to God in the highest. His undeserved favor rests upon me. God has given this world a Savior, a Savior who has reconciled me to God, not counting my sins against me. You can say that. Skip down to verse 19. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. That means Mary engaged in deep reflection on what was taking place. She wasn't able to connect all the dots, not yet, but she was certainly attempting to put things together in an understandable way. Today we'd say she was mulling things over. So let me make a final appeal. If you're skeptical of the good news for all people that you've heard this day, if this good news doesn't stir up great joy, but rather confusion, questions, outright disbelief, or even anger at being told you're a sinner who needs to be reconciled to God. Continue to mull things over. Prayerfully reflect on these things. Ponder these things in your heart. Take a free Bible home from our back table and read through the rest of the Gospel of Luke. It would take you probably two hours. That's only 20 minutes a day for the next week. That's a very small investment of time for a matter that's so important. Read the book, and then come back to church next week 
Come with your questions about things that you've read. And any member of this church, Mount Pleasant, New City Baptist, we would be happy. We would be delighted to meet with you, to go out for a coffee, answer your questions. Talk to the person who invited you to the Christmas service today. If, you're, if they're an official member of either church, then they understand and they believe the good news of what God has accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin. You can ask them. God has forgiven their sin in Jesus Christ. They've been reconciled to God. They have peace with God. And they can tell you how to receive this free gift from God also. Because you need, we all need a Savior from our sins. We all need Jesus. As Luke will say in the second volume of this work, the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 12, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Verse 20, and with this I'll close. The shepherds returned. Or, or maybe, friend, you could insert your name there. You return to your home, perhaps this very afternoon, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Amen.